I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The pandemic has exasperated the Bay Area's housing crisis. In recent years, local, state, and federal housing safety nets were forced to expand. There were eviction bans and rent relief efforts. Tenant advocates also became galvanized around housing security. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! When tenants are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! Things are still precarious today. California's eviction moratorium expired in July, and tens of thousands of Bay Area residents are still in need of rental assistance. Tensions also remain high. Many tenant activists and politicians have pointed their fingers at large landlords and property owners. That's because property ownership and management has increasingly become corporatized. But California doesn't have hard and fast rules on how property owners identify themselves. Large corporations, huge funds, and even wealthy families often purchase multiple properties under different companies or trusts. It can be difficult to identify who exactly owns a given property. That kind of obscurity led the Chronicle to investigate who owns what in the Bay Area. To find that out, it took one of the biggest data projects in the newsroom's history. Today on Fifth Emission, data team editor Dan Koff and reporter Susie Nielsen discuss the centralized database they've built that brings new transparency to Bay Area property ownership. They've uncovered the companies that have taken control of residential real estate across the region's nine counties. Who are the top power players? And how can you find out if your rental unit is owned by one of them? Later, Chronicle housing reporter Lauren Hepler will join me to talk about Veritas. It's a company that doesn't show up on the Chronicle's list of top power players, despite operating about 6,000 rental units in San Francisco. Lauren will explain why and why Veritas says they're not even a landlord at all. Here's my conversation with Data Team Editor Dan Koff and reporter Susie Nielsen. So, Dan, I'd love to start with you. The Chronicle data team built a public database that lists the owner of any property in the Bay Area. We're talking about data on over 2 million properties in the region. Why is this a big deal? Yeah, well, it's the first time that we've ever had data in a centralized place on who owns everything in the Bay Area. We wanted to create a resource that people could use to understand who owns their own home or who owns any building in the region. We're facing a housing crisis here and trying to understand who owns what and how that's changing. Who are the owners that have, you know, thousands of properties is really important to understanding what's going on. Along with increasing ownership by corporate owners, there's been increasing scrutiny of those owners. So um, during the pandemic specifically, a lot of large corporate owners of real estate were criticized for evicting tenants during eviction moratoriums, raising rents, and um, neglecting their properties. And so being able to trace that kind of ownership is more important now than ever. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I understand that building this database was not a straightforward task. What made it tricky? What did it take to get this thing built? Yeah, so the database is based on uh, assessors' data from each of the nine counties in the Bay Area. And that data is not easy to get, first of all. So uh, Evan Wagstaff, uh, a developer formerly with The Chronicle, now with the Hearst Dev Hub, he spent months 
trying to collect this data from each of those counties. We had to pay up to $495 for the data from some counties. Those others gave it to us for free. It was really difficult to just get the data in the first place. And then once we got the data, it was extremely messy. You know, each of the counties would give us different types of variables and combining them and making sure that that information was consistent across the counties was really difficult. We had to do a ton of work to clean all that data to make it work for our purposes. So in looking at this assessor data, most of the property records had some kind of information about who owned it. But that information could be, you know, the last name and first initial of somebody. It could be a family trust. It could be an LLC that didn't really have very much ownership information. So one of the things we did was start looking at alternative data sources to add to the picture. The main resource we used was the California Secretary of State's business data. That was one of the steps we took, but we also just had to do a ton of coding, analyzing, grouping, cleaning the data. Um, And all told, it took us over a year. Wow, over a year. I don't think I realized that. So there's a lot of information that can be pulled from this database. And one of the big takeaways that your team uncovered is a list of the 12 major power players in the Bay Area residential real estate, which includes corporations. And we know that housing in the Bay Area is very precarious. What are the common experiences of tenants who live in buildings owned by corporations? One interesting thing about this list of these really influential figures in Bay Area real estate is that their tenants are very diverse. The Owners themselves are also very diverse. So on one end, we have this company, United Dominion Realty, or UDR. Um, The average tenant of UDR makes over $200,000 a year. And then on the other hand, we have this man named John Vitovich, who owns a lot of agricultural land. He's a water baron in California, but he's also amassed several mobile home parks with over 1,000 units. He also has a bunch of apartment buildings in the South Bay. And then we have companies like Invitation Homes, which rent out a lot of single-family homes to lower-income tenants. So the tenants of these companies really kind of run the gamut. But what I will say is that for a lot of tenants in homes owned by corporations, there are some patterns that have emerged that uh, Princeton University researcher Matthew Desmond has spoken pretty well to. He runs this group called the Eviction Lab, which researches eviction patterns across the country. And one thing that his team has uncovered is that corporate landowners are more likely to neglect their properties than non-corporate landlords. They often engage in predatory eviction practices. um, And they also often invest in neighborhoods with the greatest possibility of returns, which tend to be lower income neighborhoods. Okay, so there's a large range of the most powerful players in Bay Area residential real estate, and one of them is a company named Invitation Homes, which you already mentioned, Susie. Recently, federal lawmakers have been scrutinizing what they call predatory purchasing behavior of companies like Invitation Homes. What have the company's tenants said about living in those properties? In the process of researching this project, I joined a Facebook group called Tenants of Invitation Homes Waypoint. Mm -hmm. The tenants are routinely complaining about issues that people like Matthew Desmond are highlighting are common among institutional investors. The company neglects to make basic repairs. They'll refuse to return security deposits, even if the tenant has not damaged the home when they leave. 
these are obviously, you know, Facebook posts. So I didn't independently verify them. Because Invitation Homes is one of the largest operators, they've been subject to a lot of scrutiny by government entities, especially during the pandemic. According to the lawsuit, Invitation Homes is the largest of the so-called Wall Street landlords that popped up shortly after the housing crisis 10 years ago, when investment groups began buying up foreclosed and distressed homes and turning them into rental properties. The suit accuses these groups of caring more about their stock price and growing their quarterly earnings than taking care of tenants and addressing problems like maintenance issues. So, The House of Representatives recently investigated Invitation Homes alongside several other large landlords. And after a year-long investigation, they announced that they had found that the company engaged in what they called abusive tactics to remove tenants from their homes during the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic. So Invitation Homes during that time, despite all these moratoriums, had filed hundreds of eviction notices against their tenants. And at the same time, the company recorded record profits during that period. So, Dan, it sounds like understanding these kinds of trends is really important. So how could a database like this empower a tenant to understand what ownership of their property actually means? Yeah. So we actually built a tool where you can type in, okay, I live at this address in this building. And that tool will show you, okay, this building is in the assessor data. It's registered to this person or this company. And then you can look and see, okay, what else do they own? So you click the button and you see uh, that the person who owns this property owns maybe five other properties. But in addition to that, because people sometimes shield what they own, we also looked at mailing address the property is registered to. And you can click on that and you might see that 50 other uh, properties um, are registered to that mailing address. Now, we're not 100% sure that all of those properties are uh, going to be owned by your landlord in that case or whoever owns your building, but it's a great place to start. Right, right. So that's, I mean, that's sort of the game changer here, right? If you're having an issue with the owner of your property, you can start to find sort of the trends across the the real estate market about what landlords are doing. Yeah. I mean, it should be a helpful tool for, let's say, if I had issues with my building, I could look at the other people who um, live in buildings owned by the same group and we might get together and, you know, form a tenants union. I don't right, know. Right. So, Dan, I want to get back to this issue of LLC. As you mentioned, some owner names in this database are shielded because, for example, a wealthy family could purchase multiple properties through shell companies or trusts. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So when people buy property in California, they're not forced to say, I own it, whether it's a business or a person. They don't have to put down their business name or like the ultimately who owns it or the person. They can register it under an LLC, a limited liability company, or they could register it as a trust or something else that's not really like directly that business or that individual. And a lot of companies or individuals want to do that so that they can sort of maybe obscure what they own. So it's hard for people to figure it out. They may also just be doing it for you know, legal reasons or tax reasons that have nothing to do with hiding anything. They just, you know, want to separate it out. Now, definitely there are companies that are listing the owner of properties as LLCs because they are afraid of the liability. In terms of like trying to understand the relationship between LLCs and the, you know, bigger owners of uh, 
the properties we looked at, we really relied on the work of a lot of other folks. Uh, one of the important groups is the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, a group that's been working across the Bay Area, but has done really, really detailed work on San Francisco and who owns what. But yes, it's been uh, speaking to a lot of researchers and experts in the field. We definitely could not have uh, done this ourselves. It sounds like the centralized database is now public. How can folks access it? And are there tips on how to make the best use of the database? Yeah, we published the story this morning. Uh, there are three separate stories using all of this data, but the one to understand your own property is to go to uh, this tool. Just go to the San Francisco Chronicle. The other thing I would say about using the tool is that you you can understand not just your own property, but you can look at you know other people that other properties you're interested in. So let's say you're curious about what the SF MoMA owns besides the SF MoMA. You could type in their address, look it up. Um, you know, if you wanted to be nosy, you could look into your neighbors as well. And, uh, <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> you know, look up the the property next to you to see who the landlord is or what else those people own. It's really a, a great resource to just understand, like, the scope of what people have in the Bay Area. Yeah, one owner that I was really interested in looking at in these different counties is religious institutions actually own a lot of property in the Bay. So, like the Archdiocese of Oakland owns a ton of property in Oakland. And I had no idea until I started using this map. Beyond the actual map itself and the stories that we did, um, we wanted to help people investigate further after they you know, figured out who owns their property. So say you use our map and you find out that your property is owned by an LLC or a company. You can use um, the California Secretary of State actually has a great search function that can help you find business records related to that. And um, once you find that, it can be a really good launching off point to uncover some of these connections. And we include some tips as to how to do that in our projects. That was Chronicle Data Editor Dan Koff and reporter Susie Nielsen. To check out that centralized database of Bay Area property owners and for some good old-fashioned nosiness, visit sfchronicle.com slash property map. That database was made possible by Emma Stiefel, a developer at The Chronicle. Go check out her amazing work. To also check out the top Bay Area residential real estate power players, visit sfchronicle.com slash power players. After a quick break, Chronicle housing reporter Lauren Hepler joins me to talk about Veritas, a company that operates more than 6,000 rental properties in San Francisco. Despite that scope, the company's name doesn't show up in public records. Why? Lauren will explain. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Lauren Hepler, before the break, Dan Koff and Susie Nielsen shared why property ownership in the Bay Area is complicated and pretty obscure. That can have serious implications for rental tenants. You looked at one company, Veritas in particular. It's responsible for a lot of rental properties in San Francisco, but it's not on the Chronicle's list of the top players in Bay Area real estate. 
Why? Yes, this is a very good question. So the project as a whole looked at the entire nine-county Bay Area, uh, but given that we're the San Francisco Chronicle, we wanted to zero in on the biggest landlords and players in San Francisco specifically, which really isn't as easy as it might seem, even though we're in this city that famously has much stronger rent control laws and tenant protections than a lot of other places. So we decided to look at a company that has long been referred to as the city's biggest landlord or apartment owner, sometimes by their own executives, sometimes by the press or others. It's called Veritas Investments, and it was started in 2007 by a man named Yat Peng Ao. Veritas now operates around 6,500 rental units in San Francisco, they told us in a statement, and have also come under some scrutiny in recent years. Here's what the founder, Yap Peng Ao, said about the company's early days during a 2017 interview on a podcast called YPO, 10-Minute Tips from the Top. I had maybe five, six, or seven buildings. And I said, you know what? I'm going to set up Veritas Investments, my own firm, and do my own thing. And I was very happy to do that. And I thought, what could possibly go wrong is 2007. Real estate markets are hotter than ever. Well, of course, as we know, everything went wrong in 2008 and 9. But that also provided that opportunity for me to go ahead and take my business from a headcount of one myself to become the largest owner of apartments and retail in the city of San Francisco, accumulating over 4,500 units in the past six or seven years from 2011, 12, and then beyond. And really what we found in trying to, you know, fact check, is Veritas still the largest owner of apartments or what is their role in the city? What we found is that Veritas is one example of a much, much bigger shift underway where we're seeing fewer rentals that are owned in a clear relationship with an individual person or even an individual company. And really, today's reality is that you've got webs of investors, of property managers, business entities like LLCs. And of course, the question becomes like, all right, well, what does that mean for people living in all these buildings? So then explain to me how a company like Veritas operates. This is sort of a complex business model. They and their affiliates manage properties and public property ownership records in some cases trace back to them still though, right? Right. And so as Veritas CEO Jeff Jordan told us in a statement, Veritas Investments as a company does not directly own the land or the buildings. Uh, Instead, they operate properties that are purchased by undisclosed investors and each held in a separate LLC. Often uh, it's an entity named after the building's address. And when we at the Chronicle analyzed uh, property ownership records, what we found is that you can still identify around 290 buildings that do trace back to Veritas through either a common executive like Yap Peng Ao or identifying data like Veritas's corporate mailing address. So you really have to work backwards to understand that, okay, Veritas or its affiliates, like there's a property management firm called Green Tree are doing the day-to-day work of leasing out apartments, collecting rent, maintaining buildings, things that a lot of people might consider, you know, like the bread and butter of being a landlord. But we still don't actually know the exact mix of investors who truly own each building. So what this whole thing shows is how much more complicated I think the whole business of being a landlord has become. And we can talk Mm -hmm. a bit more about the reasons for that. So most rent-controlled units in San Francisco are controlled by LLCs. 
We heard editor Dan Koff explain a little bit about this. You just also mentioned it. Why has the financial tool of LLCs grown really popular over the decades? Does it boil down to tax benefits? Yeah, so LLCs we know are extremely common, like they're not just used in real estate, but they're used as a way, like you say, to minimize taxes, maximize uh, financial gains. But the really big thing is that they can also be used as a legal shield. Like there are a lot of good Mm -hmm. reasons why companies in a lot of different industries would want a way to protect themselves if there's like a nasty lawsuit or some sort of dispute that could jeopardize a business essentially. But again, it maybe gets a bit more complicated or nuanced when you're thinking about buildings where a lot of people live. So Veritas insists that this is really common for real estate companies where buildings aren't owned by a single person. They say it's a structure that their investors want to see used because, again, it's strategic both financially and legally. And so what else gets obscured by this LLC model? The main thing that the sources I spoke with for this story pointed to are transparency and accountability. So if someone is living in a building tied up in one of these business models that's a a bit more complicated to understand and they have a problem to resolve, it's like, okay, well, if I don't know who the owner is, who do I go to to resolve that? And Veritas has, in fact, been sued over issues including poor living conditions and what tenants describe in lawsuits as attempts to get them to move out. Veritas did make it very clear that they and their affiliates offer tenants a lot of different ways to get in touch if they have an issue, whether that's online or through different phone numbers, through different property managers. But in their legal filings, Veritas's attorneys also use this business model, what they call kind of having single asset entities that own a building. So that's those LLCs we are talking about to Mm -hmm. distance themselves from the issues. They kind of say, well, like we that's that's far removed from from our business. And so as one housing activist I spoke with, Brad Hearn from the Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco said, Veritas and other investor-backed real estate companies, quote, always say we're not the owner, so there's no liability if something goes wrong. So that's mm. really this kind of central conflict here. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's been a lot of tenant activism during the pandemic. Large landlords have been blamed for things like homelessness and unaffordability, these big issues in San Francisco. And Veritas has been one of the targets. Why specifically? Yeah, so I mean, even before the pandemic, tenant advocates, including groups like the Housing Rights Committee that I just mentioned, have been working to help tenants protest and unionize to address concerns about rent increases, living conditions, evictions in some cases. And so all of this kind of like lingering skepticism between Veritas and the tenant unions really kicked into high gear during the pandemic when some tenants fell behind on rent or in some cases opted to participate in rent strikes. And the main contention from members of the Veritas Tenants Association who I've spoken with is, look, we know this is a company with deep pockets and we know they received federal emergency paycheck protection program loans. So they're saying that the landlord should really be filling any gaps that are left over in rent debt. They're saying Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be losing our homes when our homes are owned by investors that we think have the resources to, to kind of cover what we all know was a really chaotic situation. Of course, landlord groups say that's unfair to have that kind of expectation. But again, that's kind of where we're left at the end of the day. So in light of all that, has Veritas faced any legal consequences? Well, yeah, there's some ongoing legal cases, actually. So this fall, a judge in San Francisco is set to determine whether Veritas or its various um, affiliates should be held liable in a lawsuit that was filed 
back in 2018 by dozens of tenants. But really what's at issue is that tenants, um, again, mostly in rent-controlled buildings, allege, quote, bad faith conduct, intimidation, harassment, and abuse, uh, including unaddressed pest infestations, disruptive construction, and eviction threats. Veritas's lawyers say this is an everything in the kitchen sink kind of lawsuit, and they say it should be dismissed. Mm -hmm. And so for your story, you spoke to tenants of buildings owned by Veritas. Let's listen to one of them, Armando Rodriguez, describe his experience as a tenant. It's it's kind of hard to say who your the real landlord is because there's so many pieces to it. There's a manager, there's uh there's always property managers coming around, there's people in and out of the building working on building landscaping and um I just feel you know, you're never really connected to anything. It's just you're you're just kind of a, a a massive pile. You're in a massive pile of tenants. Uh, you're a number, basically. It feels like. So, Lauren, what is Armando's situation? How has that kind of landlord obscurity that he's describing, how has that made his living situation precarious? Yeah, so Armando has lived in a studio apartment operated by Veritas affiliate Green Tree for more than nine years. And he said he's had issues in the past with things like mold in his apartment and rent increases. So he had chosen previously to get involved with knocking on neighbors' doors and trying to unionize his building because he felt, as he said, that it's sometimes hard to bring people to the table to resolve issues. Uh, But things got much more intense during the pandemic uh, because Armando had two jobs at restaurants in the city that he said disappeared when lockdowns hit. Mm -hmm. So he's open about the fact that he has debt to pay back after falling behind on his rent that's a little over $1,900 a month. But he said he has applied to the big COVID rent relief programs that we've talked about before and is still in the process of sorting out, you know, what's going to be covered by the aid programs. In the meantime, though, he's he's gotten an eviction notice. So like other folks I've spoken with at, at a variety of landlords, the question is kind of how these processes play out in parallel. And Armando's concern is that, again, it, it's been hard to, even though he's enlisted the help of tenant advocates and others, it's been hard to, to just find who he should be talking to about stabilizing his living situation. I feel like I'm in limbo. It's, it's really frustrating because I can't, I can't feel settled. I don't feel like I'm, this is my apartment. This is my home because it belongs to someone who's trying to kick me out. It's like a shame feeling, which I I can't quite, you know, I can't shake, even though I've done nothing wrong and I've got money to pay them. They just cannot come to the table and negotiate with me. He's kind of just waiting for a court date to see what happens next. So then how does Veritas respond to these kind of accusations of Veritas being this big, large landlord that doesn't really care about their tenants. I know you've spoken to them for your story. How do they respond to those kinds of claims? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we're in touch with Veritas on many facets of this issue. And the the big one to note is that they don't actually call themselves a landlord. They say we operate the buildings on behalf of outside investors. And again, their perspective is that this really isn't unique to them, the use of LLCs and these more complicated structures. And suggesting that there are any accountability issues as a result of all of this is what the CEO Jordan called, quote, rhetoric, pure and simple, 
One thing I do think it's important to note is that we're far from the only people looking into these evolving models for rental ownership. Uh, researchers at Harvard, for instance, have found that nationwide there's some evidence that issues with living conditions are more likely to arise after a big landlord takes over from an individual landlord. And I did speak with other housing analysts at the Urban Institute who are also looking at this. And one thought that I thought really kind of summed this up was Faye Walker, a research associate at the Institute's Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center, said that whenever you're talking about rental housing, a lot of it comes down to who owns it. And and that's harder than you might think to find out. So she said, it's just really hard to have any sort of accountability when it comes to rental housing without that transparency. Lauren, you cover a variety of housing stories for The Chronicle, and Dan and Susie did mention how this new database that the team has built is sort of unprecedented. And I'd love to understand it from your perspective. What has reporting on this and digging into all this data sort of revealed to you about the Bay Area's housing crisis? Yeah, I mean, the main thing for me is how even though the Bay Area prides itself on being the tech capital of the world and generally this place where renters have more legal protections, there are just so many basic things we don't know. So we've Mm -hmm. long understood that there are gaps in the data for things like how many people are getting evicted or falling through the cracks of housing programs into homelessness. But this just goes to show how hard it is to answer the very basic question of who owns the home you're renting. Mm -hmm. And as long as that's the case, I think we're just going to continue to see more legal disputes and more controversy over how this is all impacting renters in one of the country's most expensive places to live. Lauren Hepler covers housing for The Chronicle. For her story about Veritas, visit sfchronicle.com slash Veritas. That's V-E-R-I-T-A-S. Don't forget about that property ownership database that the data team has built. That's at sfchronicle.com slash property map. And the story about the top Bay Area residential real estate power players is at sfchronicle.com slash power players. Thanks to Gary Baca for editing this episode. And thanks to you for listening.